So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and be still before our Holy Father. Lord Jesus, you said you came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we can rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life if we've called upon you in faith. We are grateful that when you save us, you are so deeply committed to us that you do not want to leave us the same, but you want to shape us, mold us in the spiritual realm and to make us reflect your image all the more. So we come today grateful that we can be here. We think of the church in Iran this morning in Afghanistan where believers are under intense persecution. Many in Iran who are jailed just for having a Bible or having been caught meeting with other believers. Be with them, protect the believers in Afghanistan as evil seems to be triumphing over that land. Help our president to make right decisions. Help him to do what is pleasing. Please give him good counsel. We are grateful today that we live in a free nation and that we are able to gather. We pray for those who are unable to come today because of this virus. We pray your protection over each one. Pray especially for Elizabeth and the throes of her pregnancy, that you would guard her today and her baby. We open your word, and to it we open our hearts, that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, that we would be more than those who just hear, but those who are willing to obey. Please come and fill me and anoint me and use me, that I might lift up Jesus, and we ask in his name, amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, it's the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you come to the Gospel of John. If you're here for the first time, we usually go through entire books, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but we are between books right now, and many of you have asked questions that you've wanted me to answer, and certainly uh, there are some issues that God has laid on my heart that I want to address in these days. And so last week, we began a brand new series on morality. We addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure last time through King David, and this morning through this woman caught in the very act of adultery, we want to address the subject of finding moral forgiveness. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, it is a trustworthy statement, deserves our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God loves to forgive people and to save people. And when the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, there were super pious religious folks who accused him of being a friend of sinners. And I'm so glad that he was, and I'm so glad he is, because he saved me in the process. And what we find in our passage this morning is a living record of Christ as a friend of sinners. Now, we're going to study a passage of Scripture that is quite often quoted, but very seldom preached. Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Quoted all the time, one of the most quoted verses. Yet sadly, this passage is often ignored, and that verse is quoted out of its context. You can make the Bible mean just about anything you want it to mean if you take it out of context. So why is John writing to just tell us 
about a woman caught in adultery? Certainly not. When you come to the end of his book, he said many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might have life in his name. Every page across the Gospel of John is about Christ. And what we're studying this morning is not just about a woman taken in adultery. We're talking about God incarnate, about the Lord Jesus. When we study Nicodemus, it's not simply a record about Nicodemus. It's the record of one who came from above who can give you a new birth from above. When you study the Samaritan woman that Christ meets at a well, it's not simply the record of a woman who five times had been married and the man she was living with was not her husband either. It's the record of the one who uniquely can give you living water. Whether it's the nobleman's son or the miracle done at Cana or the man paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda, this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me set the context for our passage so that you have the backdrop to better appreciate what's unfolding. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8 indicate that this event takes place around one of Israel's seven festivals, this particular one called the Feasts of Booths. There are four festivals that take place in the spring of the year and three that take place in the fall of the year. God uh, prescribed Passover. He prescribed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and then the Feast of uh, Weeks, or sometimes we call it Pentecost. And it's not by accident that the four spring feasts were all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, because these feasts were not just things that God wanted them to do for the fun of it. There were types, there were illustrations of what the Messiah was going to accomplish in his first coming or in his second coming. So it's not by accident that the Lord Jesus dies on Passover. He's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's raised from the dead on the Feast of first fruits. And 50 days later, on Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of God, the promise of the new covenant comes. There are still three feasts that have yet to be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled beginning during the time of the Great Tribulation, culminating with Christ's second coming as he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And so the Feast of Trumpets is yet to be fulfilled. The Day of Atonement, as it relates to the Jewish people, has yet to be fulfilled. And of course, the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the context of what we're studying today, is uh, yet to be fulfilled. So some of these feasts look back at what Christ has already done, and many of them still look forward to what he is going to accomplish. And God had these feasts, and Jews still practice them today. We had scheduled our trip to Israel to go right after the fall feasts, uh, just because there are things that are closed sometimes during that time. We had to reschedule the trip Uh, based on the Israeli government, to May of 2022. We can still take 16 if someone's listening and they want to come. But with that that said, one of the reasons God had the feast was to keep the people together as a nation. Look, the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth, just as Jesus predicted in Luke 21. To the four corners of the earth. They're the only nation that have been scattered across the world that God has brought back and reestablished as a nation. And God said he would do that at the end of time. And one of the ways that God kept the Jewish people together 
was through these various feasts that they would practice year after year after year. And so here we are at the Feast of Booths. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll remember Deuteronomy 16, 16 said there are three feasts that were non-negotiable, that if you were a pious Jewish man, you would observe the feasts. You would come literally to the temple in Jerusalem. You might live in Jerusalem. You might live on the outskirts or somewhere else in Israel. You might live in one of the surrounding countries through the diaspora where they were spread to some of the surrounding nations. But if you were a practicing Jew, you came to Israel, and this is one of the prescribed feasts. What does that mean? It means the population of Israel would go typically from 150,000 to over a million. Sometimes Josephus said there could be as many as 2 million people who would come into the city. So this place is absolutely packed. And of course, the Feast of Booths looked back uh, because if you remember, for 40 years in the wilderness, they lived in tents, they lived in caves, they lived in huts of sorts. So it looked back at God's blessing and provision for 40 years, but it was also also called the Feast of Ingathering. It also was a reminder of God's goodness to provide for the nation in their day. And so it was kind of a 4th of July and Independence Day all wrapped into one. Now, with that said, if you remember in the immediate context in John 7, the Pharisees who hated the Lord Jesus wanted to have him arrested. So what do they do? They send the temple guard, the temple police, to go arrest the Lord Jesus. And they come back, and in John 7, 46, they say, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. (laughs) They go to arrest him, they hear him speak, and they're just blown away. Now, when you come to John 7 and 8, you feel like, oh, we're just in the beginning of Christ's ministry. Actually, you're six months away from the cross. When you come to John 11, the raising of Lazarus, you're about two weeks away from the cross. So John is writing with a different purpose with a different point in view. So they come back. No one's ever preached like he's ever preached. They were just blown away, and the religious leaders are ticked. They want him captured, and not only do they want him captured, they want him murdered. And so when this doesn't work, they go to plan B, and that's what we're really looking at today. We want to begin reading in John 7 and verse 53. The feast is over, and so John writes, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you, what then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, let me begin with a a very important introduction here this morning before we step into the details of the text. Chapter 7 in verse 53, all the way through chapter 8 in verse 11, have been attacked by the critics. One more liberal translation done by liberal scholars relegate this whole section to a footnote in their translation of the Bible. Some translations uh, put it in an entirely different typeset uh, so as to imply it being an interesting story but not part of Scripture. Now, gallons of ink have been spilled on this particular section to prove that John did not write it, that this was added later on. I don't believe that for one skinny minute. Now, here's the issue. The issue is concerning manuscripts. Um, There's a course that I offer. It's called Bibliology. In fact, there was a couple here from Massachusetts on Wednesday night, and they told me they were taking that course. And I said, it's not for the faint-hearted. She said, I know. There's 500 pages of notes. I said, that's right. Well, in one section of the course, we deal with what we call textual criticism. By textual criticism, we're not speaking of someone making fun or criticizing the Bible. But the science of textual criticism looks at different manuscripts to discern whether or not something is a scribal note or part of the original. And the translators of the King James did that. When the manuscripts they were using, they said, oh, that's clearly a scribal note. We're not going to include that in, in our discussion here because that was not inspired. What was happening? Well, if I opened up your Bible, you probably have notes out in the margin, little things that you jotted down, maybe something that God said to you or spoke to you. Well, on that day, they did the same thing, not with copies that would typically go into the synagogue or other places, the churches, but for their own personal study. And so when they wrote a manuscript, they wrote from page to page, end to end. There were actually no even spaces between words. Your mind supplied the spaces between the words. No punctuation. Your mind supplied that. And of course, the way Greek is written, the structure, whether it's parenthetical or question, is determined by the grammar itself. And so there would be an occasion when someone would write a note, and then if I said, hey, I heard you had, you know, John chapter 15, do you mind if I copy it? And maybe I copied John 15 that you had, and and then someone copied my copy, and now there's a whole family of manuscripts with this person's note in it. Now, take all the air out of the balloon. Let me be clear here. Of the 20,000 lines of Scripture in the New Testament, what is under debate are 40 lines or about 400 words. That represents, according to Bruce Metzger, the great Greek scholar of the 20th century, about one one one-thousandth of the New Testament. And the small portion that is under debate, typically, if it's not said in this verse, it's said over here. And that's why someone would maybe add that word or that phrase because they knew this text over here so well and they put it in as a, a note for themselves. It affects nothing doctrinally. And, and now, if you have the New American Standard, you will notice that uh, this section is in brackets. You see it in 753 all the way through 811. 
If you have the NIV 84 in your hand, it, it sets it apart from the rest of the gospel. If you're using the King James, there's no brackets. Why? Because when the King James was translated in 1611, the manuscript issue was not an issue at that time. In fact, when they were writing the book of Revelation, for instance, they came to the end of Revelation and they didn't have any Greek manuscripts. So they went to the Latin Vulgate and translated it into Greek and then put it into English. And so if you read the original preface to the 1611 King James Bible, they'll say that, you know, there were some manuscript challenges. Uh, we were not certain on the translation of some words because remember, the Bible for a thousand years had basically been in Latin. And the whole idea of putting it into the language of the people and not just the scholar was a, a new kind of thing. Well, since the King James was written, we have found thousands of manuscripts through the whole archaeological process. So the NASB puts it in brackets not because they don't think it's part of the original. No, they believe it's part of the Scripture, but they put it in brackets just to indicate that in some old manuscripts, it's not there. Now, with that said, why even make this an issue, Pastor Carl? Because someone's going to make it an issue to you. Um, you will go to some commentaries that you'll buy in a Christian bookstore, and they just skip over this section. They end at chapter 7, and then they pick up their commentary in 8.12. I have a number of commentaries. I have maybe 40 commentaries in the Gospel of John. I have a half a dozen that are like that in my library. They, they don't even address it. Now, the writers of the New American Standard saw this as part of the original. So let me go down one more rabbit trail. When we speak of the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is without error, understand that the people who say the Bible has mistakes in it are not saying it over these 400 words in the New Testament. They're saying it from the venue and from the perspective that because sinful people fallen people, because we're all fallen from Adam, wrote the Scripture, that some of their sinful prejudices and foibles bled through the pages of Scripture. And so that's why we have mainline denominations who are saying, well, you know, Paul was just a homophobe. That's why he wrote against homosexuality. And so when we're speaking about inerrancy, it's not over an issue like that, because even the most liberal scholars know that there's no other book of antiquity that has the kind of manuscript evidence and documentation that the scriptures have. So I responded, I don't usually ever respond to, the only time I read usually, um, what they call it? Twitter, I called it Instagram last week, sure you tune I am, is, you know, late at night, usually to get my blood pressure up before I go to bed. And, and uh, you know, I read this diatribe about this person who came out as gay, as so-called Christian leader, and, and Andy Stanley commended him, and we're behind you, and we're just excited for you and what God has for you. Didn't rebuke him, didn't say, hey, you should repent, and God can forgive you, and all these different people like that. And so I made some comments, some gracious, loving comments, that it's still sin, God loves you, he can forgive you, change you, but it's sin. And people came, oh, the Bible's been translated so many times, and this and that, you can't trust it, and da-da-da-da-da-da, it's all nonsense. And I have a little booklet, you can get it in the bookstore, how to prove the Bible is true. And one of the things that we look at is how God preserved his word. 
Now, why do I believe, why do the authors of the New American Standard, why do most evangelical Christians around the world believe that this is part of Scripture? I could give you 11 reasons. I'm going to give you six this morning. You might want to jot it down. Maybe they will be helpful to you. First and foremost, this section fits the flow of the Gospel of John. The events in chapter 7 take place in the temple. He's still here in the temple when this incident takes place. And when the incident is over, he's still in the temple. So it flows out of chapter 7. This incident of a woman caught in adultery is really an illustration of what he just taught in John 7, 24. There he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So it fits perfectly what he has been teaching in 724. This is an illustration of what he has just taught. In addition, right after he instructs this woman to sin no more, he gives a sermon. We call it the light of the world discourse. I am the light of the world. And him who dispels darkness perfectly fits what he calls this woman to do. It's a perfect parallel to what has been going on. And I might note, too, that this chapter opens with a group of people who want to stone a sinful woman, and the chapter ends with the same group of people who want to stone the sinless Son of God. And so if John went from 752 to 812, there's this just abrupt transition This is part of the original. It perfectly fits the flow. Now, there's four reasons tucked into one. Let me give you a second reason. The second reason is from a third century argument. There was a book known as Apostolic Constitutions. And it was used by pastors, among other things, like a pastoral manual. And this was evidence for exercising church discipline. They cited this. Sadly... On Tuesday, I'm going to begin the issue of church discipline with a brother in our church. If your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take him to the church. Breaking his marriage vows, caught in adultery, and now waving the flag. And so in Apostolic Constitutions, which is written in the 200s, the 3rd century, they cite this as an example. Remember, they're far closer to the original than any of us are. Um, In addition, third, there's the church fathers who reference it. There's guys like Jerome and Ambrose. And so after the apostles died, there are leaders in the church. They're not called apostles because there are no apostles, but those that Christ personally selected who saw him in his resurrected body. And if those things were true, then there would be signs, wonders, and miracles that would confirm it. The leadership after that were called church fathers. And they teach this section of scripture as part of the original as authentic. Fourth, these verses don't, of course, violate any other scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if there was something taught in this section of Scripture that was contrary to what God had revealed elsewhere, you might have grounds. Fifth, what we write here, again, corroborates and it substantiates other portions of Scripture. Christ is a friend of sinners. He came to forgive people. 
And that certainly fits it. Six, the writing style. John has a certain vocabulary. I understand the Bible was not dictated. Maybe in a few small places you could say it was, a few paragraphs. But the Bible was not dictated. What God did is he worked through the personalities of Peter or John or Luke or John, and he moved them along to write the scriptures. And that's why Jeremiah's style is different from Daniel. And Moses' style on the Torah is different from Malachi. And that's why when you read Peter and Luke, they both have their own vocabulary. John writes with the simplest Greek vocabulary, but in the most profound style. This is John all the way through. This is his vocabulary. And it fits the the process that he uses all the way through the Gospel of John. For instance, in chapter 5, there's an issue of healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. And what happens? A sermon to follow. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 20,000, 5,000 heads of household. What happens? A sermon to follow. He's the only one who gives that sermon, records it, John, because this is John's style. In chapter 8, there's this woman caught in adultery. What follows? The light of the world discourse. And so the incident here in verses 1 through 11 uh, fits the pattern of John all the way through. Augustine, he's born in 354 AD. We typically call him St. Augustine. But I do that sometimes with reservation because remember, if St. Augustine is a saint, I'm a saint too. Because a saint in the New Testament is any person who's received Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, the Catholics like to put that title in front of him. I prefer to just call him Augustine. But Augustine argued, no, this was part of the original, but some weak-in-faith husband took it out because they thought that this might be a grounds for which a woman might go and commit adultery and then uh, use this passage as a basis for forgiveness. Now, he lives a lot closer to the original, and I would prefer what a guy like that might say than some 21st century critic. It's possible, I suppose, that you had some legalists who didn't want it in there, and so he left it out, and then his manuscripts were copied, and those in turn. But understand, this is an issue that Jesus addresses throughout the Gospels. Adultery is offensive to God. And God deals in a straightforward way with adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Paul wrote these words, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you put above God. It might be an object. It might be greed. Paul says greed is idolatry in Colossians nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he goes on to say, and such were some of you. God can forgive anyone. But if, say, homosexuality and adultery are not sins, then there's no need for forgiveness. It's just part of life. The writer of the Hebrews says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So adultery matters to God, and we'll see this morning that this text in no way mitigates against what God has written, and God is wanting and willing to forgive adulteries. 
And so with that said, Christ is not condoning sin like the weakened faith husband might have argued, as Augustine said. He actually addresses this sin. He deals with it in a straightforward way. He doesn't excuse what this woman has done. Now, that's an important backdrop, all right? And so you can take that and let it swirl around in your mind a little bit. And if you want to meditate on it, fine. If you don't, don't miss what follows. Three simple points on the outline. If you're taking notes there in your note-taking outline, it begins with the timing of the trap. I want us to think about the timing of the trap. So we're introduced to these events at the last verse of chapter 7. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions can be distracting. Uh, The Old Testament adds them. Well, there's some examples in the 4th century, but very broad divisions. But for the most part, the chapter divisions in the Old Testament were put together in the 9th century, and the New Testament initially in the 12th century, and then further refined in the 15th century. Why are they there? To help us find our way around the Bible. And especially when scrolls became codexes, books, it made it all that much more useful to have chapter and verse divisions. But sometimes they can cause you to miss the flow. So really, this whole pericope starts in 753. Everyone went to his home. The Feast of Tabernacles is over, so what do people do? They leave their booths and they go home. And by the way, if you go to Israel today, and about a third of the Jews in Israel today are practicing. They still, every year, live in booths for a week. They get out of their apartments and they set up these little contraptions and it's pretty cool to to look at. So everyone goes home, but Jesus, chapter eight, verse one, went to the Mount of Olives. So on this particular night, he stays on the Mount of Olives. Now, I want you to think about the Mount of Olives. Let's say up there where Jason is with the 19 people it takes on Sunday morning to run this thing, lights, camera, action, soundboards, mixing boards, all that stuff. We'll call that the Temple Mount. Yeah, somebody stood up there and waved. I got you. And then let's say the baptismal up here is the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. You go down the Mount of Olives, and at the base, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you keep going down, and you go down through the Kidron Valley, and then up to the Mount Mount Moriah. So that's Mount Moriah. This is the Mount of Olives. What's on Mount Moriah? It was the place where David offered a sacrifice to stop the plague. God then specifically said in that very place where the pre-incarnate Christ appeared, the angel of the Lord, he told Solomon to build the first temple. On that very place, the second temple was built. And centuries before David ever stopped the plague, that was also the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. So this is like a really important piece of manuscript, uh, uh, excuse me, of geography. And it's up on that temple mount that another temple is going to be built during the tribulation period, if not before, that the Antichrist will defile. So if you're in the Mount of Olives, you go down. And today, if you're there, you'd still go down pretty far, but not as deep as you would have in the first century. Because among other things, they, you know, it was a garbage dump. And it kind of filled things up. But it's still quite a walk if you want to go down and then all the way up to the Temple Mount. So he leaves, he goes to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, 
And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Early the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple, and John uh, uses a particular word for early. It means early, like right at the crack before sunrise. I left early this morning. It was still dark, and the sun was just creeping up, just barely. Early in the morning, that's when Jesus is getting ready to go, and people were ready for him. And of course, if you get up early, you must be interested, right? These were interested people. Luke writes in Luke 21, 38, you might want to put it in the margin next to verse 2, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, in spite of the opposition of the day before that you read of in chapter 7, they're not about to scare off the Son of God. He is in his Father's house, and he's there to teach the people. And we're told, and he sat down and began to teach them. And teachers would often sit down. You say, why don't you sit down, Pastor? I would if I preached as long as Jesus did. They preached for hours on end. They would preach typically four to six hours. And so you would sit down to do it because you can't get people to stand up, but they would sit down on the ground around you and they would be there. They didn't have chairs in the temple. They would sit down on the ground and the teacher would sit down as well and teach. Now, the day before, again, when the soldiers came to arrest him, they were unsuccessful. Mark 1.22 records, they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So typically, you see the Lord Jesus sitting, not always, but like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, where he gives that famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. What is he doing? He's sitting down. And you just have a smidgen of the whole sermon. Um, the upper room discourse in, in John 13, he is sitting down. When he's on the Mount of Olives and he gives the Olivet Discourse, that describe all the events coming up to his second coming, what is he doing? He's sitting down down. And so the custom of the day, you'd come, you'd sit, you'd learn from the rabbi. That's the timing of the trap early in the morning. All right? Point two on your outline there, if you're taking notes. Let's further consider the scheming behind the trap, the scheming behind the trap. Let's pick it up now in verses three and four. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Having set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So he's there teaching in the temple. He's in the court, court of the Gentiles that Gentiles, Jews, men and women alike could go into. And there's this ruckus going on and they break through the crowd and they plop this woman right in front of the Lord Jesus. And they are described here as scribes. Now, this is the only mention of scribes in John's gospel, and it's a noteworthy mention because these were the experts in the law. The scribes were an order that developed after the Babylonian captivity. If you remember, Israel was all united, 12 tribes. They split, 10 northern, 2 southern. The 10 northern were carried away by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were overthrown by the Babylonians. The two southern tribes were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, when they come back, you have this new right of people called scribes whose job was to copy, teach, and explain the law. Maybe the most famous scribe that most of us know from the Old Testament is Ezra. In fact, the scribes by the New Testament era are not only called scribes, they're called lawyers. When you see lawyers in the New Testament, we're talking about the same class of people. And they're also called teachers of the law. Now, we can thank God for the scribes. 
because among other things, God used them to help preserve the scriptures. The problem was is that by Jesus' day, they began to interpret the Old Testament scriptures by adding certain man-made traditions to what God has said. And so these professionals began to uh, reinterpret the scripture through the letter of the law and not by the spirit of the law. And so they're not spoken of very highly in the New Testament, negatively, and for the most part, they were negative because they're hypocrites. Now, they should have taken this woman first to her husband, and then they should have gone to the elders of Israel. But they don't follow procedure. They don't go to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Court, as it were, that adjudicates matters like this. They bring her to Jesus, and they drop her right in his presence. You can see it happening. Maybe she's, you know, being tugged along, her hair is disheveled, her clothes are messed up, and teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. This adjective, the very act, was used of a thief who was caught red-handed, so to speak. In other words, God uses this particular word to underscore that she was literally pulled away from her partner. She was caught, she was overtaken in the very act of adultery. And the crime is adultery. Moikea, it's a word that's used to refer to extramarital sex. So she's married. And by the way, she's Jewish. And I'll point out why we know that in just a moment. Now, adultery, again, is a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And these scribes and Pharisees, oh, they're not so much concerned about her committing adultery as they are wanting to take down Jesus. They've created a trap here. They're after bigger games. She's just a pawn. She doesn't mean anything to them. What matters to them is that Jesus comes down. And so in the brutal fashion in which they bring her, they interrupt the teaching of the Word of God, and you know everyone's like looking and stunned. Teacher, she's caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the charge that they bring is a prejudicial charge right from the start. How do we know? Because if she's caught in the very act, where's the man? But they're not interested in bringing the man. They're just, maybe, maybe they made a deal with the man. Hey, look, you, you go sleep with this woman. And we won't tell your wife about the other adulterous relationships you're in. I, I don't know how they pulled it off. But they're not interested in justice. They're not interested in obeying the law. They're interested in trapping Jesus. And so the man's absence is as conspicuous here as the woman's presence. I mean, this is a well-rehearsed, well-thought-out strategy that they have because, again, they want to bring him down. So they say, look at verse 5. They put him on the horns of a dilemma. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? The innuendo is clear. Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you say? And you is emphatic in the Greek New Testament. You there, Jesus, what do you say? Now, when Jesus heard the term adultery, 
He knew the law well. I mean, at the age of 12, he's in the temple and he's out thinking all the scribes and Pharisees and they're blown away that this 12-year-old kid knows the scriptures so well. And he knows under the law that there are three crimes that God dictated capital punishment for. One was adultery, another was murder, the third was idolatry. And so knowing the Torah, knowing the first five books, and they know that he knows it, what's your verdict, Jesus? They want to trap him. They not only want to put a noose around this woman's neck, they want to put it around, first and foremost, his neck. They were saying this, verse 6 says, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, if you were here last time, we studied that God very carefully said that to stone someone for adultery, there had to be two or three witnesses. And by the way, this doesn't apply today. This was under the theocracy of Israel. Calvin thought that the church had replaced Israel, that the church was the new Israel. And so he ran Geneva like a theocracy. And so he had a guy like Michael Silveltis stone, not stone to death, burn at the stake for theological heresy. This was God preserving the nation of Israel. And she's Jewish. How do you know she's Jewish? Because when you read Leviticus 20, it is plain that this only applies to Jewish people. If you were to stone all the Gentiles who are around you, you'd be stoning folks all day. They're characterized by adulterous lifestyles. No, God said at the start of chapter 20, this applied to the Jewish people. And so in the Mishnah, it says, if the Sanhedrin condemned to death a person as often as once every seven years, they're considered to be a slaughterhouse. Remember, you had to have two or three witnesses. Now, adultery is usually done in private. And so very rarely, as the Mishnah, which is kind of a commentary on the Old Testament written by a bunch of rabbis, very rarely ever happened. But listen to Leviticus 20 and verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with a friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In Deuteronomy 22, 22, Moses wrote, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman, and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Quote, unquote, providence. We caught him in the act. Okay, teacher from Nazareth, you know what Moses says. What do you say? Now, remember the day before, the chief priests and the Pharisees are incredibly frustrated because they send their own temple police to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. Now they've got a new opportunity, and they have created what they think from a human perspective is unsolvable. There's no loophole in the law. Will he dare to exalt his way of thinking above what Moses has written? If he ordered the woman to be free, then he would lose the support of the people because now he was a breaker of the law. And if he ordered them to execute her, 
Now he's in trouble with Rome because Rome had taken away the opportunity for the Jewish people to exercise capital punishment. And the only time it happened were cases like in Acts 7, if you were a lawbreaker, where they stoned Stephen to death outside the city. But I tell you, if you get caught with it, you are playing with Rome itself. So are you going to break Moses' law or are you going to defy Caesar? What are you going to do? They, they think they've got him set. The Living Bible renders verse 6, they were trying to trap him. And of course, on more than one occasion, they tried to pit Jesus against Moses, but now they thought this is foolproof. They were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. They didn't bring up the accusation to shore up justice. They bring the accusation to get him. I mean, she's a nobody in their eyes. They want Jesus. Now that brings us to the third point. Beyond the timing of the trap early in the morning, the scheming behind the trap, there's the salvation from the trap. The salvation from the trap. Notice the end of verse 6, how Jesus responds. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, the Lord didn't initially answer them. He just simply stoops down. The Greek text literally says he wrote in the ground. If you've not dusted your furniture lately, you can write into the dust, so to speak. That's the word that's used here. By the way, there have been more books written on the Lord Jesus than any other single person in the history of the world. But he never wrote a single book. In fact, this is the only place in all of human history where we know he actually wrote something. And what he wrote would soon be erased with footprints all over it, or the winds would soon erase it. Now, with that said, you say, well, what exactly did he write? Well, for 2,000 years, men have debated this. Well, I'm going to give you a theological answer. I'm going to give you a dogmatic answer as to what was put down. And the answer is very simply, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he wrote. Neither does anyone else. Now, there's a number of suggestions as to what he wrote, some that can easily be negated. Some say, well, he was just doodling, you know, trying to buy some time, thinking about how he's going to respond. Well, actually, there is a Greek word for doodling. God uses the word grapho that literally means to write, not to mention the Son of Man never needed to think his way through a situation. He is the embodiment of truth. He always had an answer in whatever situation he was in. Some people think that he wrote down maybe Exodus 23.1 or Exodus 23.7, where you're not to bring a false charge against someone. Well, they obviously have not read the text very carefully because, number one, this woman never defends her innocence, and number two, Jesus knows he is guilty, and that is clearly stated in verse 11. So that's just kind of a dumb suggestion. She's guilty. Everyone knows it. The scribes know it. The Pharisee knows it. She knows it, and Jesus knows it, and that's why he says, I, I condemn you no more. In either case, rather than examining the accusee, Jesus is going to examine the accusers. And while we don't know exactly what he wrote, we do know that whatever he wrote brought deep conviction to those who were there. And so while we do not know the exact content, we certainly know the, the broad subject as to what he would have put down. 
Clearly, the statement in verse 11 and the reaction of the accusers is that he's not writing something against the woman. He's writing something against those who come to accuse him, the scribes and the Pharisees. So instead of passing judgment on the woman, he's going to pass judgment on the judges. No doubt he's indignant over the way they treat this lady. They don't treat her as someone made in the image of God. There's no compassion in their hearts. They want blood. Maybe, um, maybe he wrote down the name of a woman that one of the Pharisees committed adultery with in Rome. And he thought, no one else knows, or someone in Ephesus. No one knows, and amen. He wrote down so-and-so's name. How did he know that? Or maybe um, perhaps he wrote down a sinful place where someone committed adultery. Or maybe he wrote down the name of a woman in, up in Galilee that one of these scribes or Pharisees got pregnant. We often say that secret sin is open scandal in heaven, and indeed it is. And while men can hide their sin from men, sooner or later it will be found out. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out either on this earth or in heaven. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the Holy Spirit does record the reaction of those who read down what Jesus wrote, which speaks volumes. Look at verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, again, when capital punishment was to be unfolded, as Leviticus and Deuteronomy both teach, the person who made the accusation or the two or three witnesses that made the accusation, the Scripture dictated they had to be the first to throw the stone. So if you're going to come and some lay some charge so that the whole community can stone this person to death, you have to initiate, and the community will follow. Now, please notice, Jesus did not say, let him who has never sinned cast the first stone. Otherwise, what Moses wrote would not be allowed because we're all sinners. So again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I just couldn't bring myself to throwing it away, but back in my office, I have an envelope, and in it was a rock. And this Christian counselor mailed me a rock. And he was mad at me because I suggested to a couple couples, you don't need to go to him. Why not, Pastor? Well, he's on his third marriage. And right now he's living in an adulterous relationship with a woman that he sings with in the choir every week. And of course, that church could care less. They were as liberal and still are liberal. So he mails me a rock. He was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, Jesus is not saying he that has never sinned cast the first stone. And that's how this verse is often used, where people can say, you know, like, judge not lest you be judged. No, this dovetails with what Jesus already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, towards the start of his ministry. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
He is clearly not requiring perfection because there could be no judgment at all. What he is requiring is there could not be hypocritical judgment. And so Jesus has already said, as I noted in John 7, 24, judge, it's a command, judge with righteous judgment. He is forbidding judgment with hypocrisy. So he's not asking that sinless men judge because there's only one sinless person who ever walked on the earth. Otherwise, the judicial benches would be empty, and yet God requires judgment. He's saying, he who is free from this particular sin, let him be the first to cast the stone against her. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite. What is he doing? He is implicating them in the sin. Hey, look, it was probably a setup, no doubt. If it were not a setup, then where was the man? And if they set this up, then they are equally guilty of adultery because they're not promoting holiness, they're promoting, per, in, in, indulging, encouraging sin. Not to mention an actor thought they may have already committed it. Look at verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Maybe this time in his omniscience, he wrote the name of the man who was caught in the very act. How did he know that? That would imply that the adulterous man was also guilty, and they were as well. Now look at verse 9. When they heard it, he's writing, big crowd, and they're reading what he's writing. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, probably because they're wiser, probably because they got more sin behind their name. They're the first to leave, and he was left alone, and the woman was there in the center of the court. When they heard it, uh, the King James trying to bring out the nuance of the word hear, to hear with conviction, because it was convicting. Whatever it, he said, it was very convicting. One by one, beginning with the older ones, they leave. Eventually, even the younger ones leave. And the only ones who are left is the original crowd to whom he is teaching, and this woman who's plunged right before the Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? He's unmasked their hypocrisy. They come to shame Jesus. They leave in shame. And so here's this woman in the center of the court before the Lord Jesus, never two more people different. She's been living a lifestyle of sin. He's absolutely sinless. So what does he do? He builds a bridge between his sinless perfection to this sinner, and that's what he's done to all of us who've met him. He builds a bridge, a bridge made out of grace to show us how we can approach God. Look at verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? By the way, this might sound disrespectful. Hey, woman, you know, like a New York cabbie, woman. <laughs> but that's not the nuance of the Hebrew idiom. It's difficult maybe to translate into English. Maybe the best example I could think of would be when my sons would say, ma'am, very respectfully to their mother, 
And of course, you could, I remember being in the Ukraine and we're going into this village to witness to people, people who'd never heard, some of them, the name of the Lord Jesus. And we're passing out glasses because under communism, they, they had no eyeglasses for 70 years. The healthcare stunk. That's what socialism, that's what communism does. It unravels a culture. You want socialism? Go look at what it was like in countries that have lived with it. So, you know, we had a vacation Bible school, and we said to the kids, hey, you got old glasses, talk to your neighbors, and we collected like two trunks of glasses. My dad was an ophthalmologist, I said, dad, is there anything wrong if people just try on different glasses? No, he said, can't hurt the eye. They got one, I remember this 91-year-old woman, she put on a set of glasses, and she had a big smile come across her face, because she hadn't seen clearly in decades. So we're going through the... uh, Village, this is 1999, and my uh, translator says, babushka. I said, what does babushka mean? He said, uh, I said, I know we have those little wooden babushkas. Well, what does it mean? He said, old woman. I said, you're calling her old woman? He said, that's actually a term of respect. And that's the nuance here. That's why Jesus said from the cross to Mary, woman. I mean, John, behold your son. Um, and he refers to his, his mother as as woman. So it's not a put down. Woman, behold your son. Jesus said, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now, please note, he does not say she is not guilty. He knows she's guilty. And the word condemn is a verb that literally means to bring down. And it's a very picturesque word because when you condemn someone and you use this verb, you would take the stone above your head and you'd bring it down on the people. The first, the witnesses, and everybody would follow. And you rocked them to death. Did no one condemn you? Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No, they left. Because they were guilty. So she stands face to face with God incarnate. She said, no one, Lord, Please note, she never denies her guilt. She never hides her guilt. She never makes excuses for her guilt. And by the way, she does not give the typical response, no one rabbi, but no one Lord. See, that would have been the typical response, no one rabbi, because that's how you referred to men teaching in the temple or on the steps there outside going up to the temple. But she had put some truth together, this Jewish woman. Maybe she put together Isaiah 53 in her mind, and she realized this is the one whom the scriptures wrote of who would come and die for our sin, be pierced through for our iniquity. And she calls him Kurios, Lord. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Kurios, Lord. You shall be saved. When she said, no one, Lord, she was putting him on the throne of her heart. You say, well, wait a minute. How could Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? I do not condemn you either. Now, by the way, this is very different from the scribes and the Pharisees. They have an entirely different mindset over this woman. She is a pawn. Jesus sees her as a person made in the image of God. All they could see is her past. 
All the Lord Jesus can do is see a new future, go and sin no more. They only want to rock her. He wants to save her. Now, how could he do this? How can he ignore the Mosaic law? Now, wait a minute. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. So if Jesus comes to fulfill the law, how is it that he can dictate, no, neither do I condemn you? He is perfectly fulfilling it on this day. Why? Because again, Deuteronomy 17 reads, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. There's not two witnesses, much less three. He's not condoning her sin at all. He is clear that she has sinned. That's why he says, go and sin no more. Well, how can he remain just and holy as the incarnate Son of God and forgive this woman because he's putting the cross between her and her sin? Put down on the margin next to this verse, Romans 8 and verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. We studied it about a month ago. Let me refresh your memory. Romans 8, 1. There is there... There is there, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is saying if you are in Christ, and that's the simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament, God no longer condemns you. If you are outside of Christ, you can expect nothing but condemnation. What was this woman doing? She had come to faith, she was fulfilling what Paul mentions in Romans 4, 4 and 5 when he looks at two Old Testament characters, Abraham and David, to show that God has always had one way in all of human time to save people. You know the verse, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. You work hard at the end of the week, your paycheck is not given to you by your employer as a favor, as a gift, literally. No, it's due. It's an obligation. They owe it to you. But... To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That person's faith is reckoned, credited as righteousness. Who does God declare, impute righteousness to? The one who doesn't work. You try to work for your salvation, you're saying you can save yourself, that you can be good enough. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. No, he justifies the ungodly person. And we are all ungodly in the sight of God Almighty. She doesn't make excuses for her adultery. She sees herself as an ungodly woman, and she puts him on the throne of her heart, Lord, and he says, neither do I condemn you. He cannot possibly say that unless she has been justified because there's no condemnation only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Neither can he say, go and sin no more because as you read the rest of the chapter, he's gonna deal with people who are outside of the Messiah, who have an intellectual faith, who are only there to learn, but they don't wanna respond. And he says, your father is that of the devil and the one who sins is a slave to sin. There's no freedom. You say, wait a minute, Jesus hadn't died yet. No, he's about six months away from dying on that cross. But listen, if the cross is good for us who live 2,000 years later, it was good for this woman who's six months away from having it in time and space paid for. Go and sin less, 
No, that's not what he says. Go and just sin to a respectable level. Go and sin no more. You say, can we reach sinless perfection in this life? No. But if you're a growing Christian, your life will progressively change. But if you say you have no sin, you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you. But the standard is holiness. And that's what a real saving encounter with the grace of God does to you. Listen to these words as Paul writes in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Please note, it does not say that all men will be saved, but salvation is available for all men. There's a universal need, and so there's a universal provision that has been made. Understand, Christ didn't die for some select few, only for the elect. He died and shed his blood for the whole world. The world means world. We can say it in theological terms that the grace of God is sufficient to save anyone, but it is only efficient for you when you come by faith. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Titus 2.11 teaches that salvation is offered to all men, but to whom does it instruct? Just us. Just those of us who have called upon Jesus in faith and Christ can read her heart, and so he can say to her, go and sin no more. Why? Because she has a new life, a new relationship. And so much like Jesus said earlier, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. He came to save her. He came to forgive her, not to condemn her. And Paul will also say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Everything has become brand new. That's what happens. I don't condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. As best we can tell, most people left that day, at least the scribes and the Pharisees, with a guilty conscience. She left forgiven with joy in her heart. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest some applications as we close off our time. Number one, when we deal with people in sin, we must go with absolute humility. When we deal with people in sin, we need to go with absolute humility. Uh, we discussed this just recently from Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught entangled in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Maybe you know a fellow believer who's in the wrong. You know they're being immoral, that they are committing the kind of sin that warrants. Not all sin warrants, obviously, discipline, or we'd have discipline 24-7 because we're all sinners. But some sin does. Maybe you know such a person. You know, say, hey, let's pray for so-and-so. That's prayer gossip. You go and confront the brother in private. And if he doesn't listen, you take two or three, and it's qualified as spiritual people. That is spirit-filled people, people with a clean heart, people who are not living in hypocrisy. 
You don't go to club them. You go in a spirit of gentleness, and you go with the attitude, lest I too be tempted. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, and why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not look at the log in your own eye? We go in a spirit of gentleness. We don't go thinking this could never happen to me. And as I said recently, when you say that, when that's the spirit in your heart, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. So we deal with people, we go in absolute humility. Secondly, I learned from this passage, when God convicts us of our sin, it will either drive us to Christ or away from Christ. It drives us either to Christ or away from Christ. As these people are confronted, they're convicted. By the way, conviction is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If I set my hand on a hot burner, it's a good thing I still have functioning nerves. I don't in part of this hand, but I do in this hand. I could put this hand on a burner, and it could cook my finger, and I wouldn't know it. But if I put this hand, it's a good thing. It tells me there's something wrong. And it's a good thing when you are under conviction because it tells you that something is spiritually wrong. And unfortunately, these men are convicted in their consciences, but they don't respond. And people tend to go to one of two extremes. They either flee towards Christ, they run to Him, or they run away from Him. Look, we got a a national preacher who preaches the largest church in America, and he says he doesn't speak about sin. Because people have so much stuff already that's bad in their life. He doesn't want to talk about sin. That's what false teachers do. These scribes and these Pharisees, they were convicted to the heart. They walked away one by one by one. But what do they do? They go out and plot how they're going to take him down next. Third, God's forgiveness, when rightly understood, serves as a motivation to holy living. When forgiveness is really understood, it serves as a motivation to holy living. And so after the Lord grants this woman forgiveness, no condemnation, He says, from now on, go and sin no more. Stop that kind of living. And that's what grace does. When my son Jeremy was eight years old, he said to me one day, he said, Daddy, do you think that some people will think, well, now that I'm saved and salvation is forever and I can never lose salvation, do you think some people will reason, well, now that I'm saved, I guess I can go and just sin and it won't matter. And I said to him, Jeremy, it's kind of like this. If I communicate to you that I love you and you can't do anything to make me love you more and you can't do anything to make me love you any less, I just love you no matter what. Does that motivate you to obey me or disobey me? He said to obey you. Well, that's what grace does. You're in Christ. You have been credited with the righteousness of God in Christ. You can't do anything to improve that status. John 17 says the Father loves you as much as He loves the Son. You can't do anything to make yourself more pleasing or displeasing. You are righteous in Christ, a saint by calling. And when you understand that kind of grace, it instructs you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Certainly, as Titus 1.16 indicates, there are perf- people who profess to know God. 
but by their deeds they deny him. Hey, there's coming a day, man, where vast multitudes of people who preached in his name, who did miracles in his name, who cast out demons in his name. He goes for the most dramatic conversion you can picture. You say, man, he's a spirit-filled person. Because an unbeliever can do all three of those. But by their deeds they deny him, away from me, you who practice iniquity. You say, well, pastor, I've never committed adultery. I'm not like this woman. I think everything's fine. You've got a different problem. You're identifying with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, quote, unquote, the righteous people who think they're righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. You're identifying with the scribes and the Pharisees. You have a different sin. It's called self-righteousness. You say, Pastor Carl, I have so messed up and soiled my life. I'm just buried in shame and guilt. Then you can identify with this woman. It's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, there are some people who think they are too bad to be saved, and they never get saved because they don't take God at His word. And then there are those who think they're too good to be saved. And they never get saved because they do not see what God says about them, that we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of Scripture that you put in your Bible to teach us more about the Lord Jesus and what he is like. I know, Father, there is someone listening today somewhere in the world, some state, some foreign country, and they've tuned into this broadcast, maybe in this auditorium, maybe in one of our campuses, and they feel like the woman caught in adultery. Thank you that though our sins be like crimson, they can be as white as wool. That whosoever, anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone, our Father, on the basis of what Jesus did on his cross. That he didn't die for some or most, but all of our sin. And he proved his sinlessness and his ability to pay when you raised him from the dead. Help them to call upon him. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. For you promised and you cannot lie that whoever will call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Our Father, may we never forget what you saved us from. May we always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Good news is for sharing. Help us to be faithful in this new week to reach out to people in our world that is becoming faster and faster covered over in evil. May we be faithful stewards of the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.